Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. Welcome students, welcome to Citizens. Welcome to another live stream. Welcome to phase two. We can be excited about phase two, the opportunity for us to be able to gather in more numbers together. Had the privilege, the blessing of being able to be at our Camas Washugal campus yesterday to see our first gathering of the people in three months. And it was awesome to be able to see the church gathered because it is what we do, students. It is the definition of the church we gather. It's cool that uh, we have some people here. Thank you for being here appropriately, socially distanced. Very nice. I'm excited to jump back into our series in Philippians together with you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gavin. I'm one of the elders here at Northwest Gospel Church. We want to jump back into Philippians and we're going to talk about this concept of rejoicing in the Lord today. This is a passage that's focused on joy. And even here, we kind of need to stop and almost take a deep breath because this idea of a passage focused on joy in the face of everything that we are seeing in the world today seems a little bit strange. Why would we focus on joy at this point? I can even hear the voice in my ears as I was preparing this Why would we focus on joy versus maybe a topical sermon? Wouldn't this be the perfect time to do a topical sermon? We could do one on injustice. We could do one on peace. We could do one on a number of topics. Why continue a series in Philippians and focus on joy? Students, we believe God is sovereign, meaning that he is always in control. He always is in control of his plan. And as we open the word each week, we believe that through opening the word, God reveals to us exactly what we need in that time. We do not need to pick and choose verses. We do not need to move out of our course because God is ready to speak to exactly where you are, where we all are through these verses today, even if this text, even if these verses were planned months ago. God has a counter-cultural message for us today. While there are those around us who will say we need to despair, God says we need to have joy. Joy right now during sickness, unrest, anything else 2020 wants to throw in our general direction. Patiently, God says, to you, to me, in this room, In wherever place that you're watching this, he says patiently, have joy. Students will read today in Philippians that we have joy through it all because Christ is in it all. Again, we have joy through it all because Christ is in it all. Let's open the word together. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's start here by remembering our context for these verses. So Paul has been battling a sect of Jews that he's referred to as the Judaizers. So the Judaizers are people that as Gentiles are coming to know Jesus, Gentiles meaning Romans, Greeks, essentially anyone who's not Jewish. The Judaizers are telling those Gentile Christians that there are additional hoops that they need to jump through in order to truly become a Christian. This included such commands as kosher eating, as what they would wear, or as we'll get into in more detail, even ritual circumcision. So Paul's desire for us as believers today in this passage is joy. In that vein, he wants to warn us against those things that are going to steal joy from us, that are going to turn us from our identity in Christ that our joy is established from to worldly things instead. His first warning is simple. Don't fall for it. Like students, don't fall for it. Let's go back to verses two and three. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is warning us here strongly three times against that which can cause us to turn away from our identity in Christ. First, he tells us to look out for the dogs. Now, this may seem a little weird to us in our context because we tend to like dogs. Dogs are fun. They are warm and cuddly and they enjoy being around people. So for us, when we say look out for the dogs, we might think of these type of dogs, right? They're very cute, right? This one's giving a high five. He thinks he's people. They're, these are dogs that we want to come by. We don't want to look out for dogs like run away. We want to look out for dogs like come play with us. These are not the type of dogs that Paul is talking about here, right? Paul's more talking about maybe say this type of a, of a dog, like a slightly scarier, more frightening, maybe kind of weird looking dog, right? What's going on here? Back to these Judaizers. So a common insult from Jew to Gentile back in those days was to call someone a dog. 
because dogs back then were not the type of fun lap friends that we enjoy now. Dogs were wild scavengers. They were constantly on the outside looking in. Judaizers saw themselves as God's chosen race. And they had some basis in this. In the past, in the Old Testament, we saw that God did say that the tribe of Israel, the people of Israel were his chosen race. And there were consequences back in the Old Testament for times when uh, the Jewish people would kind of intermingle with outside cultures and they would allow their morality to be co-opted by how they interacted with those outside cultures. So now after Jesus, who changed everything, the Judaizers still see the Gentiles on the outside. They see them as dogs. They were being told, you will be dogs, scavengers on the outside, looking in at the Jewish seat at the table of the kingdom of God. So what is Paul doing here by warning us to look out for dogs? Paul is taking the same insult and he's throwing it back in the Judaizers' faces. He is warning us, watch out for those who claim ethnic superiority. Watch out for those who claim a special ethnic privilege into a relationship with Christ. Don't fall for it, students. Don't fall for the lie that there is a special path reserved for a particular ethnic group into Christianity. That lie is still prevalent at times today, and it must be rejected. It is a hindrance to joy that must be thrown off. Next, Paul warns us here to look out for the evildoers. Now, this may seem simple to us. We've watched enough superhero movies. We understand that they're bad guys. Those are the evildoers. Iron Man comes in, he takes care of it, and then we're good to go. That is not exactly what Paul is saying here. The words here that are translated as evildoers actually could be better translated as evil workers, or even more specifically, evil gospel workers. Paul uses this workers using the same Greek word as those who labor in gospel ministry in a couple of other places. First in Colossians 4 verses 10 and 11 he writes, Aristarchus my fellow prisoner greets you and Mark the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you receive instructions if he comes to you welcome him and Jesus who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Specifically warning against evil workers, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 12, And what I am doing I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles." deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So watch out for evildoers, for evil workers, for evil gospel workers. Why? Well, because Paul is stating, don't fall for it. Evil gospel workers seek to make your identity in Christ based on other markers than, well, Christ. Back 2,000 years ago, that was based on an adherence to rules and regulations that Christ had made unnecessary as Christ was the fulfillment of that law. The fulfillment of all of those specific rules on what to eat, who to see, everything. Christ was the fulfillment of that. Do we still have people today, citizens, 
supposed gospel workers who seek to make your identity in Christ based on other markers. They may say that your identity in Christ is based on adherence to a particular political philosophy. It could be based on the type of games you play, the language you use, the friends that you have, the social media you consume, the way you talk about yourself or others. There is no end to those who seek to take our whole of Christianity and divide us into smaller and smaller slices of the pie instead of looking at us as the communal whole of the church. So finally, Paul here warns us to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And no, he is not warning us against getting tattoos. This is specifically talking about circumcision, about the insistence that this needed to happen as a rite of passage. You had Gentiles who were becoming to know Christ, that in their 30s or 40s, they would come to know Christ and as, a, as a man, and they would be told, you still need to go through this rather painful process in order to become a Christian. Paul dismisses this, and he's not just dismissing this saying, don't do circumcision. He's saying, he's calling it a painful mutilation, which is pretty strong language. There is no verse, students. If we were to grab our Bible, if we were to flip through it here, there is no verse that we can find here that says that your path to Christ is if you accept him with your heart, believe, on him, believe in him, and then do X, Y, and Z. We can flip through this whole thing for a long time and we're never going to find any other step that we need to take beyond what Christ already did on the cross. In Romans 10, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And moving to verse 12, he writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't fall for it, students. Don't fall for the lie that you need to be part of a particular ethnic group to be saved. Don't fall for the lie that you need to divide yourselves over and over to be saved. Don't fall for the lie that you need to do more to be saved than what Christ already did. If we do this, we will lose our joy, students. We will lose the reason for our joy if we change the root of our identity. Sam may have, been, have gone over this once or twice already, but we are no longer citizens of an earthly kingdom. We are no longer Americans living in the state of Washington, living in Camas, Vancouver, Washougal, Battleground. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Our identity is stable, rooted in the completed victory of Christ. And until we accept that, until we believe it, hold on to it, we will lose our joy. Especially at times when stress, chaos, change, competing voices reign around us. This is what Paul means in verse 3, where he says, For we are the circumcision. He states this in a blatant countercultural statement that would be seen as virtually blasphemous at the time. The whole notion of circumcision was God saying, You as a people group are set aside because of this physical marker that you are making. You are set aside. 
Paul is saying that all of us as Christians, by the nature of what Christ did, we are set aside. We are the circumcision. There is nothing more that needs to be done, not because of any physical characteristic, but because we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. There are many lies that the Spirit of the age tells us, students. There is one truth. All of us together who worship, who live out our lives because of and through the work of the Spirit in our lives, who glory in the overarching love and power of Christ Jesus, all of us are saved. There is one, we are the circumcision, we are the church, one body, one family. Moving on, Paul moves to verse 4 to continue to shame these Judaizers. And he wants to show us that you can never earn it. You can never earn it. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There's a lot of talk in our day and age today about privilege. And without getting into that particular culture war, we can note here that Paul is both acknowledging and rejecting his earned privilege. Paul is challenging the Judaizers now on their own turf. The Judaizers were big on status. They were big on what you've earned. They were big on your title, who you were, what you became. Paul's now meeting them and saying, you want to you wanna look at resumes? Here is my resume. He is laying down everything that he has earned at this time. He has an impressive resume. One might even call it Paul's awesome resume. So let's go through Paul's awesome resume here. First, he starts out that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This is not because he was rejecting everything in the past. This is to show that he, in his, in his life, adhered to doctrine from the eighth day after his birth. A probably particular painful day in his life. But he was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, he claims his descendants straight from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was an Israelite. And not only an Israelite, he claims the specific tribe he was part of. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, one may re recall that Paul, when he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, had a different name. And that name was Saul. Now, one might also recall a rather famous Saul from the tribe of Benjamin in the past, who would be King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Paul and his family trace back their line in Benjamin to, be, to honor those key figures in that tribe, even from the past, which is also why he notes that his family history was faithful to his tribe. Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What we might think now is if we say that we bleed red, white, and blue. You know, red-blooded American, right? That, that's what Paul is getting across here. His family, even though he did not grow up in Jerusalem, he was raised fully Hebrew. 
He grew up a Hebrew of Hebrews. Finally, he notes that he was a community pillar, and there's a few different ways that he talks about that status. He says he was a Pharisee, which meant he was an important religious leader, similar to what an elder or pastor might be in our context. He says he was revered for his knowledge of the faith, and he was zealous for it. So on fire for his faith, his faith being so important for him that he was uh, ready to fight against that which was seen as a threat to that faith, namely the early church. He also says that he was so knowledgeable about the code and so committed to the Mosaic code that he could be blameless under that law. He could be righteous under the law. So Paul previously in his awesome resume had it all together. He was a leader. He was seen as someone to emulate. He was a good person. Everyone wanted to be like him. When I was growing up, everyone wanted to be like Mike. And for those who just watched the recent thing on the Bulls, that was a trip back. Now, for those of us who couldn't jump then and still can't jump now, still couldn't necessarily do any of those things, but that was the thing. That was the person we all wanted to be like back growing up. In that culture, again, where being a religious leader was so important, where being knowledgeable was so important, Paul was in that position where everyone wanted to be like him. He had the pedigree, the training, activity, and knowledge to be the man in that culture. He is not summing all of this up so people just think he's amazing. He's not giving us this resume as an ego trip. He is building himself up so that he can tear himself down. If we recall back in verse 3 that we looked at, it says, we are the circumcision who put some confidence in the flesh, who put like a little bit of confidence in the flesh. It says we are the circumcision who put no confidence, no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in these resumes. They are meaningless as part of our identity. Paul is saying, I had everything, everything, and it wasn't good enough. You can never earn it. He is telling every Judaizer, you haven't earned it. Regardless of how good you think you are, what hoops you've jumped through, what claims you've made, you have not, and you can never earn it. Do we still have people today, right now, students, who tell us that we have to earn our forgiveness? That we have to feel bad enough, guilty enough, say the right words, do the right things in order to earn it? Let's say this clearly for all of us. You can never earn it. Your resume will never be good enough. You can never learn enough. You can never say enough right things. You can never treat people well enough. You will always, you will always still be a sinner who falls short of the glory of God without Jesus. If we miss this, if we miss this part of our identity, if we start believing that our identity lies here in these type of items, we miss a bullet point that's not there in Paul's list that he clearly doesn't put there. There's no bullet point, students, that says that he is a citizen of God's kingdom. Because while we can't fall for it and we can never earn it, the truth is that Christ is it. Christ is it. 
Let's read the rest of the passage starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul rejects his earned identity for his unearned identity. All that gain, all that status, Paul rejects this for the sake of Christ. Students, there is so much here. This is such a powerful, important text of scripture. We could spend a couple hours just on these verses, and I know that comes across as a threat. We will definitely not do that right now. But I would say marinate in these verses, students. During this time, these verses have so much that are important to tell us, that are crucial to the challenge Paul lays out here for us in terms of our own identity in Christ. There are a few parts here of this text that correlate to that constant joy Paul is asking us for here that we're going to dive into. First, Christ is worth losing it all. What is your gain, students? If you were to look at your own personal resume, what would it say? Good student? Good at sports? Makes people laugh? Turns in assignments mostly on time, shows up at church regularly, sort of pays attention. If I was to put a resume together, yeah, I would say I was a good student. I graduated college, I have a good job, I pay my taxes, I'm an okay husband and father, I'm a leader. Paul's saying, great, now give it all up for the sake of knowing Christ. Anything that's part of your resume, anything that's part of your identity that isn't Christ, give it all up. We can look at the, at the verse here. Does it say, I count a little bit as loss? Do I count most of it as loss? I count everything, everything as loss. We can look at that and think, think about what's important to us and immediately kind of, we want that stuff. Impossible. I don't want to give, I don't want to give that up. That is part of my identity. And Paul says, students, it's worth it. It's worth it because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we were doing exercise, if we were to have a scale it's so my hands, both sides of the scale. And on one part of the scale, we were to put everything about us that is part of our resume, everything that we have done in order for people to proclaim us a good person, for the world to look at us and say that we are a good person. And for a lot of us, we can think of a few different things that we could put. We would actually be able to maybe stack this pretty high. I'm a good person. I'm nice to people. I don't get into fights. I don't generally talk about people behind their back too often unless they deserve it. I can stack this up pretty high. And on the other hand, we put 
knowing Christ Jesus. And what happens to the scale, students? It tips pretty hard in favor of knowing Christ. So what keeps you up at night? What worries you? What steals your joy? Is it an identity not rooted in Christ? Is it part of this side of the scale? Is it part of your gain? Paul says, Jesus says, lose it. Give it up because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. Everything else is rubbish. Or as we might say, everything else is kind of crap. Are you a good singer? It's rubbish. Are you a nice person? Rubbish. Do you have a lot of friends? Rubbish. Are you a dude who's well-ranked in Apex Legends because you can click heads? Rubbish. Paul says it's all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus. And this brings us to the second part here. Christ makes us righteous. So easy question, students. What makes us righteous? Hint, I wrote it up here. Christ makes us righteous. For those of us like me that grew up in the church, this is an easy question and answer. We learned this in basic Sunday school. We understand Christ makes us righteous. But when we're a little bit stressed and we're alone, and it's just us and the voice in our head, what do we believe then? Do we believe that Christ makes us righteous at that point? That's not what our heart truly believes at those times. We constantly want to believe that we need to do more. We need to feel bad enough, do enough, constantly measure ourselves up to some type of impossible standard in order to be claimed righteous. And this is not to say we do nothing. The pursuit of holiness is an absolutely worthwhile endeavor. We do not sin all the more. But the foundation students, the basis behind that pursuit, this is what is so important. Whose version of righteousness are you pursuing? What voices are in your ear right now telling you how to feel, telling you how to act? There is a subtle lie, students, that in order for us to keep all this rubbish from before, we need the world to proclaim us righteous. That in order to protect our status, in order to protect our gain, we need a righteousness that comes from the law. Is this, quote, righteousness that the world is pushing you to accept ever actually achievable? Is it ever enough? Or, just like the old law, is it a constant set of failure and judgment because no one can ever measure up? Praise God that we have a righteousness from God that comes, that depends on faith, that which came through faith in Christ because we will otherwise never measure up. We are a new creation, students. Once we've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, he has given us a new heart. And that new heart bends us to his will. The work is complete. Let's repeat this because it is so important. The work is complete. Because of that work, 
We move on to Paul's next point, that Christ gives us eternal life. Why do we want to know Christ? Why do we want him to make us righteous? So that by any means possible, we can attain the resurrection from the dead. Students, there is not a political group, advocacy group, friend, relative, status symbol, sports figure, Instagram influencer who can help you attain the resurrection from the dead. It is only through Christ that is possible. We will lose everything, be made righteous by Christ in order to be right before God, in order to be part of his kingdom in heaven to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, let's be honest here about what this text says. This includes sharing in his sufferings. This is not a uh, permanent sunshine and rainbows state of joy that we're talking about here, which we're we're aware of because we do live in the Pacific Northwest and it rains here constantly. So we come back full circle to where we started. Why do we go verse by verse through the Bible? Because God speaks to us, reveals to us what he needs to us each moment. The word, the word is sufficient. What does the word say to us about the state of our world today? Disease still claims lives every day. Tensions run high in cities. Protests for worthy causes, riots for unworthy gain. It is hard to find joy. It is hard to find peace, to find our identity. What does Paul have here for us? We see a desire to share in Christ's sufferings. This is our desire to participate in the gospel, our desire to follow a servant king who walked of his own volition to a cross. Our own sufferings pale in comparison to what Christ carried on that day, the burden of all of us. So as we are stressed, as we suffer, we can say, thank you, God. Thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you that the burden you carried on the cross was enough to cover everything that I feel right now. Everything that I'm experiencing right now, everything that I see in the world today, thank you that your death was enough to cover all of it. And as we see suffering borne by others, we can pray for God to intervene. We can be thankful for his sovereignty and again thankful that his blood was enough. Our sharing in Christ's suffering is based on our rooted identity as part of Christ's church. We see a desire to become like Christ. The verse says becoming like him in his death, which doesn't mean that we all just want to die right now. We didn't suddenly become some type of suicide cult. The words used here mean an ongoing process to become more like him. And more importantly than that, an ongoing process that God drives Students, we cannot become more like God. We have nothing about us that gives us the ability to become more and more like God. That was the original sin back in Eden of eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. We cannot become more like God. God can make us more and more like him. He is in control. So as the nations, nations rage They tell us what to think. They tell us how to conform. They tell us how we need to change our identity. Christ will change our heart. They don't need to change our heart. Christ will change our heart. This can be freeing students. 
It is not up to what we need to say and do in a particular moment. We can trust that God has it in control. He can change and move us to exactly where we need to be in exactly in each moment. This is our personal relationship with the risen Savior of the world. We can see, students, as I said at the beginning, that we have joy through it all because Christ is in it all. When our identity is secure, whatever happens is against the backdrop of what Christ has done. We rejoice in the Lord always. Paul wrote these words while under lock and key in Rome awaiting his death. He was not in a great spot. He knew he was about to die. This is not a normal place where you're going to think someone is joyful, waiting a death that you did not deserve. But what does Paul say here at the absolute beginning of our text? He says, to write the same things, to rejoice in the Lord is no trouble for me. The dude is waiting to die soon. And he says, joy in the Lord is no trouble for him. If this guy in his situation can be joyful, can we be joyful? Can we have our identity focused on the Lord still? We cannot hand wave away his words. We rejoice always because Christ. Students, these words are necessary for us as we engage with the world. Is there sickness? Yes. Is there injustice? Yes. Is there anger, bitterness, every other type of sin? Yes. And yet, citizens, because of Christ, we have joy. Do you have joy today? Is it no trouble for you? Real joy because of what Christ has done. Praise God. If not, and I have to be honest, is what I need Let the words from Paul encourage you today. Focus you. If you know Christ, if he has changed your heart, the world can completely fall apart around you and you can still have joy. It is crazy to consider, but it is always true. Pray, work together in community, grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn, and do so in joy because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for joy. Thank you for the identity that you have given to us, the death of your son, that identity that is so rooted in you that it is beyond anything that the world can throw at us. Lord, help us focus on that identity. Hold on to that identity. Praise you for that identity as part of your church. Thank you that your work is complete, Lord. Thank you that there is nothing more that we need to do in order to be right with you. Help us to encourage one another. Give us words to speak that are rooted in that identity, Father. Help us pray with those who need it, pray for those who need it, but through it all, give us joy, Father. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.